The title of this session is Rebuilding a Marriage After an Affair. Continued. Jay Adams is pastoring, and uh, so if you're interested in getting some information about the National Association of New Thetic Counselors or about the conference next fall, uh, write to this place, or uh, I have some information about NANC, and uh, perhaps George does as well, uh, but we can give you a, a packet of information. I'd like to also mention... Uh, and out on the table where your certificates are, there's a brochure about the biblical counseling program at the Master's College. I happen to be directing that program at the Master's College now. We have a major in biblical counseling. As far as I know, that's one of the two, perhaps it's the only college in the country that has a biblical counseling major, uh, not uh, a psychology major, but a major for biblical counseling. So if you're here and a pastor and you have some young people in your church that are interested in college uh, and you want a college that is uh, com- completely committed to the sufficiency of the scripture, uh, we encourage you to get some of the information and uh, let your young people know about us. And the other thing is, if your parents here and uh, you have children who are teenagers and they're just about at that time where they're thinking about college, we'd encourage you to uh, uh, talk to them about the Master's College, especially if they're interested in biblical counseling. Uh, This is uh, uh, probably, uh, uh, as far as I know, the only place where you can go to get that kind of a a major. So uh, encourage your young people in that particular uh, direction. Now, I want to begin this afternoon by taking an informal survey. How many of you want me to begin by telling a joke? How many of you want me to begin by telling one of Jay's jokes? Well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you a joke and for four reasons. One is that Jay has already told all of my jokes. The second is that after all the abuse and the accusations I took from Jay last evening about my jokes, I didn't think I'll ever tell a joke again. Oh. Now, don't hold me to that. My self-esteem may recover. I told Jay after the meeting last night that my self-esteem was destroyed and that I knew what it was to experience horrible abuse. And you know what he said? He didn't say, sorry about that. He didn't say... Please forgive me. All he said was, good. I'm glad it's destroyed. Sympathetic guy that he is. 
And the third reason I'm not going to begin by telling you the joke is because if I told you a joke, Jay would probably accuse me of stealing it from him. I told him after the meeting last night that I've only stolen one joke from him in all of my life. I stole a lot of other things from him, ideas, concepts, thoughts, but only one joke. And someone came up to me after the meeting last night and said, Why in the world would he think you'd want to steal his jokes? (laughs) They're not worth stealing anyway. Now, don't tell Jay that uh, someone said that. Because we wouldn't want to hurt his self-esteem. And the fourth reason I'm not going to tell any jokes as we start is because I've already wasted too much time telling you what I've just told you, and we've got a lot of material to cover. Now, I'm sorry that we didn't get through all of the material for the last session Some of you have come up to me and asked me if that's in book form or if you can get it on tape someplace. And uh, no, you can't. Uh, Some of you have encouraged me to put some of this in book form and maybe someday in the future I will. Uh, But uh, I think you can go through the notes and look at the headings and the headings are somewhat self-explanatory. But I want to move on to the second outline, the outline for the second session. And we want to talk about a generic program for rebuilding a marriage after an adulterous affair. I'm going to give you a 12-step program for promoting reconciliation. And the first step in that program is that to rebuild a marriage after an adulterous affair, the people involved must choose to rebuild. They must choose to rebuild. In John, the fifth chapter, Jesus came to a man by the pool of Bethesda. He was impotent, had been that way for 38 years. And Jesus looked at him and he said to this man, Do you want to be made well? Now, at first glance, it may seem as if that were a very foolish question. Do you want to be made well? Here's a guy who's impotent, not in a sexual way, but a physical way. Uh, He's unable to fend for himself. He can't move for himself. He's dependent upon other people. And Jesus walks up to him, looks him in the eye and says, do you want to be made well? Well, there could have been some very good reasons why that fellow didn't want to be made well. As long as he wasn't well, he didn't have to work as other people did. Uh, He didn't have to fend for himself, take care of himself. Uh, He could depend upon others. Many responsibilities uh, that he would then have, he didn't have now. It would be a new kind of life. He hadn't experienced it before. There may have been fears. How would he get a job? How would he take care of himself? All of those other things. And so Jesus says, do you want to be made well? You know, as we're working with people, we have to realize that there are some people who, while they may say they want to be made well, they really don't want to be. 
There are people who don't want to get over their anger problem because it's the only way they know of controlling situations. And so if they give up their anger or get over their anger problem, they've used, they've lost the only tool that they have to make somebody do what they want them to do or to bring them under control. I think there are some people who use their depression as a manipulative device with other people. I remember a number of years ago when I was ministering in England for a period of time, we stayed in the home of a, a lady and her husband for six weeks and and she came over, and she and her husband came over, stayed with us for a couple of weeks, and we were back in, in England, we stayed with them again, and they came over and stayed with us, and we got to know them pretty well. And that lady was the daughter of a very well-known preacher in England. And she said that when she was a young girl, when she would do something that was bad, something she knew her father would be displeased with, and she knew that her father had found out about it, she would run upstairs, go into her bedroom, get down by her bed, and she would begin to pray, and she would be the sorriest little girl in all the world, pleading with God for forgiveness and telling God how bad she was. And then her father would come in, and when her father came in and saw her, on her knees asking God for forgiveness, uh, his heart would melt and he would turn around and she wouldn't be disciplined for it. And she said she learned that as a way of manipulating her father. Now there are people who learn subtle ways of manipulating others and so uh, on the surface they may say they want to be made well, but in reality uh, they don't. And when you're working with people whose marriages have been blown apart by the dynamite of adultery, you've got to make sure that they really do want to rebuild their marriage or you'll be working in vain. One of the most wonderful stories of two people who were reconciled after they had been alienated is found in Luke 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. At the beginning of the story, as it's found in the Bible, the son wanted to get away. He wanted to put as much space as he could between him and his father. And his father and he were alienated from one another, primarily because of the attitude of the son, not the attitude of the father. The Bible says he went away into a far country. Now, it was far, at least in his attitude, and probably even somewhat distant in terms of geography. So they were alienated. And yet, at the end of the story, the two are reconciled, and their relationship has been restored. Well, that reconciliation began when, according to verse 17, the prodigal son came to his senses. He began to do some thinking. Previously, he had been thinking about his father. He had been thinking about his past history. He had been thinking about his present situation in a particular way, and it was a negative way. At this point, he changed his thinking. He came to his senses, and he began to interpret things more realistically. 
And we've got to realize that in many cases, when people tell you about their past, they're not reproducing the past, they're reconstructing the past. Now, to some extent, all of us do that. I mean, you can have two children in exactly the same family, and one of them will tell it to you one way, and the other will tell it to you another way, and some of that may be due to the fact that the parents treated them differently, but... Much of it will be due to the fact that one person interprets it one way and the other person interprets it in another way. And they reconstruct past history. Well, this fellow had reconstructed what had happened to him. And at this point, he came to the place where he got a more accurate reading on his past history. And he thought and he made a decision that he would go back to the Father. He made a decision that he wanted to rebuild. But that restoration would have never occurred unless the Son had decided that he wanted to rebuild the relationship. And so when you have a situation in which the marriage relationship has been devastated by the sledgehammer of adultery, you'll have to work on motivating people to want to rebuild because without... That desire, your efforts will be in vain. Now, sometimes when people remain in an unreconciled state, it's because of a lack of information. They lack the knowledge. They lack the know-how of how to put it back together again. They lack the wisdom of how to work out and through their problems. And what they need at that point is a counselor who will primarily function as a teacher. They need somebody to teach them. And it's wonderful when you have counselees like that who come uh, as Cornelius did when Peter came. You remember when Peter came to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius had gathered a crowd together? And Cornelius said to Peter, we're all here to hear whatever the Lord has commanded you. We're just waiting to hear what you have to say. And sometimes you have counselees like that. They come and they say, just teach me, just show me. And... That's a wonderful situation. But in other instances, uh, people won't come merely with the need to be taught. People will remain in an unreconciled state because of a lack of inclination. Not simply because of a lack of information, but because of a lack of inclination. They really aren't sure they want to be reconciled. And what they need then is a counselor who will be a motivator. Now, in the years that I've been counseling, I've seen some wonderful reconciliations. But I've never seen a reconciliation until the people involved decided that they wanted to rebuild their relationship. In many instances, the biggest challenge in counseling is to bring them to the place where they decide... They want to change. Until that decision is made, you can give them the best counsel in the world, and the counseling isn't going to go any place. Now, I could tell you of several situations in which people came for counseling. They did the homework, at least somewhat. They appeared to make some superficial changes. But the relationship between the two of them didn't seem to improve significantly. In our last session, I mentioned 
the situation of the wife of a pastor who claimed that he was having an affair with a woman in the church. She heard him on the telephone, and she thought that he was saying some things to the woman that should have been said only to his wife. The man, of course, denied it, but because he had this problem, and she was threatening telling it to the board, he came for counseling. The man gave a token effort to the homework. He would promise to change some of his behaviors that his wife didn't like. He had the habit of telling her he would be home at a certain time, and frequently he wouldn't show up at the time when he said he'd be there. He promised that he would stop doing that. He uh, would tell her some things that he would do, and then he didn't. He promised that he would take a regular day off and spend it with her. He didn't. He promised that he would start having family devotions, which she wanted him to have. He did it once or twice, but then he would be negligent. He promised that he would begin to have sex relations with her. And once or twice he did, and then he didn't. And here was this man just playing around in the counseling, and I couldn't figure it out because I pressed him about the issue of the other woman. No, no, nothing's going on. And here he was, his ministry was in danger, and he would make promises and then not fulfill them. Later, this man had a heart attack. He ended up in the hospital. And in the process, as his heart was mending, he needed a bypass operation. He had a bypass operation. Infection set in. He almost died. And in the process of recovering and all of that was going on in his life, uh, he finally fessed up to the fact uh, that he was involved with another woman. Now, he came for counseling regularly. He did some of the homework. He made some minimal changes. But not much was really happening in the two of them being reconciled. And the main reason was, was because he didn't want to be reconciled. He was coming just to pacify his wife. Now, what do you do to motivate people to choose to reconcile? Well, some of the things that I'm going to present in this 12-step program may help to motivate people. And then, if we have time, at the end of our session, I want to talk more specifically about motivating resistant people. Now, one of the most important motivating factors will involve helping people to realize that their marriage can be rebuilt. Some people don't choose to work on rebuilding their marriage because they have already chosen to do something else. Like this pastor I just mentioned. He already had decided that he would rather have someone else. He really wanted out. And he was looking for some way to get out without losing face. In fact, he and his lover, it came out, were actually praying and asking the Lord to take his wife. 
because this other woman would be a much better pastor's wife than his... I mean, it's amazing how you can rationalize and justify things. And they were praying that God would take the man's wife so that the two of them could serve the Lord together. Well, he didn't want to reconcile because he had already decided he wanted somebody else. However, there are others who hesitate to commit themselves to work wholeheartedly on reconciliation for other reasons. And hopefully we'll have time to look at some of those reasons later. But I think that one of the main reasons that many people hesitate is because of a sense of hopelessness. Sometimes the hopelessness is connected with fear. Fear that the other person will not change. Again and again I've heard people say, well, he or she promised to change before and they didn't change. Or they changed for a little while but then they reverted back. Or they have a fear of exposing themselves to what they had encountered previously. One man told me, you don't know what I've experienced for most of my marriage. He said, my wife has hit me, my wife has kicked me, my wife has locked me out of the bedroom. Her favorite name for me is a seven-letter word that questions my heritage. And he went on to say that I have heard her tell me I hate you more than I've heard her tell me I love you. He said she would not cooperate with him. She was irresponsible in the area of finances. She had denied sex to him for months. He said she's demeaned my parents and she won't allow my children to spend time with my parents. She says that she will change, but how do I know that she really will? I can't take it any longer. I'm afraid to put myself back into that situation. Sometimes the hopelessness is connected with fear. Sometimes the hopelessness is connected to discouragement. Discouragement over the size and the number and the history of the problems in their marriage. They think that things have deteriorated so far that the marriage can't be rebuilt. The barriers are too high and they're too wide. The conflicts are too many and too long-standing. And many will say, we've tried, we've read books, we went to seminars, we've talked about it, but none of it has worked. And so if it didn't work before, why should we think it will work now? Why try if you're going to fail anyway? Why not just recognize it's over and move on? One good friend of mine told me that he'd gone to some of the elders to talk about his marriage problems and that they had agreed that it was over and told him they would help him work out some of the details in reference to the children and that after the divorce they would be proud to have him in their home and to sit with him in church. He said that they said they would help him to bury the hatchet and move on with his life. And then when he went on to exhort me to recognize that it was too late, the marriage was finished, and what he wanted from me if I really loved him, and if I were really his friend, what he wanted from me was support. He wanted love and compassion. Can't you see I'm hurting? It's over. Accept the fact that it's over. And stand with me. And let me move on. Well, there was a, an incredible amount of discouragement in that man. 
Now, what this means is that when you're counseling people whose marriages have been impacted by adultery, encouraging a true biblical hope will be a major part of your counseling effort. Scripture says of hope that it functions as an anchor to the soul. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. It keeps people from being shoved this direction and that. It's an anchor to the soul. People without hope are shoved this direction and every other direction. Scripture says it produces joy and peace in the midst of tribulation. Romans 5, 1 and 2. It produces boldness and courage. 2 Corinthians three twelve. It makes us willing to endure hardness and suffering. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. It helps us not to lose heart and become discouraged. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Hope produces steadfastness and perseverance in spite of obstacles and opposition. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. And it keeps us from despair. person who has hope doesn't have despair. If you have despair, you don't have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Now, these passages say that hope can do the very things that Jesus or the Bible indicates that people whose marriages are broken down need. What do people whose marriages are broken down need? They need an anchor. They need boldness and courage. They need joy and peace in the midst of their suffering. They need to be willing to suffer. They need encouragement. They need sustained confidence. They need steadfastness and perseverance. They need something that will keep them from despair. People whose marriages have been ravished by adultery need hope, and we as Christian counselors can offer that hope to them. In a situation where two people are Christians and they are willing to face their problems God's way, we can always... Assure them that reconciliation and restoration can be achieved. Where you have two Christians who are willing to handle their problems God's way, you can assure them that if they're willing to do that, whatever problems have been between them can be resolved. Proverbs eighteen nineteen says that a brother offended is harder to be won than a city, and the contentions thereof are like the bars of a castle. Now that verse says it's hard to win somebody back when that person is offended, but it's not impossible because Matthew 19.26 says, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And Jeremiah 32.17 says, there is nothing too hard for Him. And so we can guarantee people who are Christians, that if they will handle their problems God's way, their alienation can be eliminated and reconciliation is possible. But in a situation where you have only one person who will return, one person who wants to be reconciled, you can still offer hope. Oh, you can't guarantee that the other person will return, But you can guarantee that God will be with them, that God will strengthen them, and that somehow God is going to use this for good. Romans 8.28 If they will respond in a godly way, 
will come true in their experience. And James 1, 2 says, count it all joy when you encounter various kinds of trial, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Right now, your faith is being tested. Will you trust God? And if you will trust God, you will be perfected and made complete, lacking in nothing. And so we can guarantee that if they will respond in a godly way, something good will come out of it. But more than that, we can encourage them with the possibility that if they are, and if they do what God says they ought to do in this situation, the other person may return. God's Word says you can overcome evil with good. God's Word says that a wife may win her husband without a word while he beholds her chaste manner of life coupled with fear. And Proverbs 16 and verse 7, one of the favorite verses that I have in this particular regard, is when a man's ways please the Lord, God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. If our ways please the Lord, God often works on the end of our enemy and makes our enemies to be at peace with us. There is no ironclad guarantee, but there is a hopeful possibility from the Word of God. And so, first of all, if you want to help people to rebuild their marriage, you've got to bring them to a place where they want to rebuild it. Secondly, you need to help them to know that they can, with God's help and by His grace, rebuild that broken relationship. Thirdly, to rebuild a marriage after an adulterous affair, the people involved must understand the biblical directives about marriage. They must understand the biblical directives about marriage. R.C. Sproul has said, At this point, I would like to make a rather bold assertion. In every single marriage that ends in disaster... Some stupid decisions were made with respect to God's regulations. If God's regulations were followed scrupulously, there would be no divorces and there would be no unhappy marriages. To violate the regulations of God is not only an exercise in disobedience, but an exercise in foolishness as well. If you want a happy marriage, the most intelligent thing you can do is to submit to God's regulations they are designed to promote and protect your full happiness. God carefully planned them. But before the regulations of God can work for our happiness, we have to know what they are. Again, study is required that we may not only know the wisdom of God, but that we may master it. Who wants to be satisfied with anything less than an A marriage? Confidence in the wisdom of God is closely related to our obedience to Him. The great delusion is contained in the thought, if I keep His commandments, I will not be happy. Herein is the fundamental human delusion. There may, of course, be pleasure in disobedience, but there can never be happiness. And happiness in the biblical sense is more than a warm puppy. When I experience a conflict of interest or a conflict of desires between what I want and what God requires then I know the moral crisis of sin. When I choose my own desire and insult the integrity of God's wisdom, I at the same time reveal myself to be a fool. 
R.C. Sproul says, In every single marriage that ends in disaster, some stupid decisions were made with regard to God's regulations. And I agree with R.C. Sproul. Marriages break down because one or both of the people involved either don't know or aren't willing to follow God's directives. Marriage was God's idea. Jay brought that out so clearly last night. And marriage is very important to God. He planned it for man's welfare. It's not good for the man to be alone. Hebrews 13.4 says that marriage is honorable. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. God is for marriage. In fact, God liked the idea of marriage so much that He used it as an illustration of His relationship to His people. In the Old Testament, He frequently uses this illustration of marriage to describe His relationship with Israel. And in the New Testament, it's one of the favorite ways that God describes His relationship to His church, to His people. He calls the church His bride, His wife. Well, God not only developed the idea of marriage, He not only likes the idea of marriage, He created the people who were to get married, He gave them instructions about marriage. He didn't leave it up to the man. You know, this morning, Paul Tripp was talking about Genesis chapter 1, and how God talked to the man and didn't leave it up to him to figure out what he should do and what he shouldn't do in reference to children and in reference to the creation around us. And then he talked to the man about what he should do in the garden. And, and then he came to the man after the fall and gave him instructions as well. God didn't leave it up to the man in these realms, nor did he leave it up to the man in the realm of marriage. He didn't say, okay, Adam, there's your wife, go to it. Figure out for yourself what a marriage is and how a marriage should function and what a husband should do and what a wife should do. It's up to you, Adam and Eve. No, he didn't do that. He gave them premarital instruction in Genesis chapter 2. I think we have a capsulization of it there. God probably said a lot of other things, but he capsulated it there. And then all through the Bible, again and again, he's giving instructions about marriage and about family. And along with R.C. Smoll, I am bold to say that when marriage problems occur, it's either because people don't know or they aren't following God's principles for marriage. It's because they're not following the principles of Genesis 2, 18 through 25. It's because they're not following the principles of Psalm 127 and 128, which are the home psalms, the family psalms. It's because they're not following the principles concerning interpersonal relationships and family matters in the book of Proverbs. It's because they're not following the directions of the Song of Solomon. It's because they're not following the instructions of Matthew 19. It's because they're not following the directions of 1 Corinthians 7 
It's because they're not paying attention to 1 Corinthians 13. It's because they're not interested in the things that God says in Ephesians 4 or in Ephesians 5 or in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 8. When marriages break down, you can count on it. You have one or two people who are not following God's directions and that marriage will never be rebuilt in the way God wants it to be rebuilt unless they understand and apply biblical principles. So, to help people rebuild marriage, you must clearly understand what the Word of God says for yourself. That's the third step, making clear to them Bible instructions. And don't take it for granted. Don't assume that just because people have been a Christian for a while that they understand what the Bible says. Back on the East Coast, toward the end of my counseling with Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, and I worked with them for over 15 years and counseled thousands of people over that period of time. But toward the end of my career with or ministry with Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a lot of my counseling was done with pastors and their wives, perhaps because I was older, perhaps because I was the director of the center in Bethlehem, I don't know, but I began to minister more and more to pastors who were having problems. And the thing that amazed me, perhaps it shouldn't have, because when I was younger as a pastor, I had a lot of wrong ideas about marriage, even though I thought I knew what the Bible had to say. But pastors who would come and sit in my office would have wrong ideas of what the Word of God had to say about marriage. And I learned, never assume that people really do know what the Bible means when it talks about marriage and family affairs. So, the people must understand the biblical directives about marriage. The fourth important step is to rebuild a marriage after an adulterous affair. Each person should specifically identify his sins and his failures. Each person must be brought to the place where he or she will specifically identify his sins or his failures. When adultery occurs, the tendency is to focus mainly on the sin of adultery. And that's what's happened. And they come to you and the person who has been the offended person is usually very concerned about the sin of adultery and sometimes the offend the person is also concerned, but the tendency is to focus on the sin of adultery. Now, as I've already mentioned, I believe that adultery is a serious matter and must not be minimized. But I think it's a mistake to focus only on the specific sin of adultery. The sin of adultery may be the primary focus in the initial stages of counseling, but as counseling proceeds, the focus must change to broader issues. I believe that's got to occur because in most cases, the adulterer has sinned against his wife in many more ways than the sin of adultery. His adultery is usually the tip of the iceberg. It's a symptom of a lot of other things that are wrong in the adulterer's life. And you'll be making a terrible mistake if only 
if you only focus on the adultery. You've got to look at the broader picture as far as the adulterer's life. But more than that, I think it's a mistake to focus primarily on the sin of adultery because in most cases, the non-adulterous person has been failing to be the mate that God wants him or her to be. There may be some cases where the non-adulterous person, while not functioning perfectly, has been basically a really good wife or husband. I recognize that some people are so evil, they are so given to evil, that hypothetically, they could have a perfect mate, and they would still commit adultery. Nevertheless, over the years, I have never met with one of those perfect mates. Over the years, I have yet to find somebody who could not be improved as a mate in some way. Many times when we talk about marriages affected by adultery, we speak of the innocent person. Now, I recognize what is meant by this, but technically, it's questionable if there are any really innocent parties when adultery occurs. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that when adultery occurs, we ought to excuse the adulterer because the mate hasn't been perfect. Nor am I saying that we ought to jump all over the mate for his or her failures. In most cases, this would be to violate the Lord's statement about not breaking a bruised reed and not quenching a smoking flax. It would violate our Lord's commands about being gentle, compassionate, and kind. In this regard, timing and manner are very important. We must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We must remember Proverbs 15.2, which says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. We must remember Proverbs 15.23, which says, How delightful is a timely word. We've got to be concerned about, is this the right time? Am I ready to press in the right manner? Slowly but surely... Gently but courageously, the focus must be shifted away from the specifics of the adultery to broader areas in their relationship. Gently and surely, the focus must be broadened to include the identification of the sins of the non-adulterous person as well as the sins of the adulterous person. In this regard, several passages in Matthew and one passage in Philippians are very instructive. You know the passage in Matthew 7, verses 2 through 6, where the Lord talked about taking the log out of your own eye before you take the speck of dust out of your brother's eye, and it's saying that both individuals need to be willing to look at themselves. And there are two others in Matthew which are very 
important in this regard. One is in Matthew 18:15 through 17, which says, of course, if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother. And the other is Matthew 5:23 through 26, which says that if your brother has ought against you, you go to your brother. In any case, if it's your brother who sins, you go to him. If it's your brother who has ought against you and thinks you've done something wrong, you go to him. It's always your move. What it's saying is that both people are responsible. And if the husband has some things against the wife, it's her responsibility to look at what she's done wrong, or if it's the case of the wife committing adultery and the wife has something about against the husband, then the husband must be willing to look at himself. And in Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3, our Lord said, I beseech Euodius and I beseech Seneca that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, notice what he did there. It's really interesting in the Greek. Frequently... We might say something like this. I beseech Euodia and Seneca that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Use the same verb to appeal to both people. Paul didn't do that. He said, I beseech Euodius and I beseech Seneca. He put the onus of responsibility on both of them. Now, who knows whether... Euodius was more responsible than Seneca, or Seneca was more responsible than Euodius. Maybe one was 70% wrong and the other 30% wrong. But Paul doesn't quibble or pay much attention to that. He says, Euodius, it's your responsibility to look at yourself and do whatever you can to promote reconciliation with Seneca and Seneca... You've got to look at yourself, and you've got to do whatever you can. You see, he sorts out responsibilities and tells each of them to do what they should do. When adultery occurs, we have to consider the possibility that we have two people who are at fault. This isn't always true. Romans 12:18 says that as much as is possible, you live peaceably with all men, and suggesting that there are some people... Even if you do everything you can, you can't live peaceably with them. But that's very rarely the case. We need to at least check it out to find out what's going on in the life of the non-adulterous person. Now, how do you check it out? Well, you may do it in the session by asking the right kind of questions. You begin to ask questions about what's going on, what was going on in their relationship, how they were relating, what she was doing, what he was doing, uh, what conflicts did they have, how did they respond to conflict. You check around the circle and find out what was going on in many of these areas. You can do that in the session. In the session, you can do it by observing the way that they relate to each other and the way they relate to you. Some of the best information, some of the best data you'll ever get is what you get while you're sitting here and they're sitting there. You watch the way she looks at him. You watch the way she relates to him. You watch the way she deals with him. You watch the way that he deals with her. You're seeing a microcosm of the macrocosm. You pay attention to the way that 
They respond to you by the way they get annoyed or irritated with some of the questions you ask. And what they do with you, they're very likely doing with each other. You don't have to simply get stuff from outside of the session. Some of the best stuff you'll ever get will be what happens right there in the session itself. And one other important way of gathering this kind of information is through various inventories. Now, I can only speak for myself in terms of what I do and the material I use. And if it's helpful to you, fine, use it. If not, develop some of your own or get it someplace else. But there are a lot of inventories in this Homework Manual for Biblical Living, Volume 2, that I have designed specifically to give me information and data. And I have the couples get this, and I assign homework out of this. And they bring it back. I ask them, if possible, for them to get it back to me before the session. And I'll go over it and see what it indicates and decide what we should talk about, even in the session itself. In this particular book, there is a Rate Your Marriage questionnaire with 35 questions, which will give you a lot of information. And what I do with people who come and they've got problems now, I'll say now, what I want you to do is is take your marriage in in certain periods. Uh, Let's say they've been married 15 years. I'll say, all right, I want you to answer these questions in three different ways. I want you to answer these questions as you would have answered them during the first five years of your marriage. And then I would have asked you to answer these questions as you would, say, for the next um, nine years of your marriage. And then I want you to answer these questions the way you would answer them during the last year and during what's what's going on right now. And it gives me kind of a reading of, of whether it's always been lousy or whether it's just changed recently. In this book, there's also a sample log list for husbands. What I find, husbands and fathers, what I found is that I would frequently give couples, and I want you to go home, and I want you to make a list of 50 to 75 specific ways in which you have failed God and failed your mate. I'd give that to the wife and to the husband, and uh, as Jay has said, I'd say 50 to 75 ways, because if you say 10 ways... They can be very broad, very abstract. But if you say 50 to 75 ways, they've got to become specific. So I want 50 to 75 ways. And then I'd give some illustrations. Now, I don't want you to say this. That's too broad. That's too abstract. And even though I'd be very careful in terms of what I would tell them, they still come back with nonspecific stuff. And so I decided I had to do something to prime their pump. That's an expression that you youngsters probably don't know anything about, but some of us who are older, we know what it is to prime a pump. We used to, at one point, we didn't have running water in our house, so I used to go, have to go out to the well and I'd carry water in. You know, to get the, the water to come up from down there, I'd have to pour some water down. We'd prime the pump. And so what I did was I put together a sample log list for husbands and fathers, and uh, it has, uh, I think I have about 104 ways in which a husband may fail his wife. And I want you to go over this. Some of them won't be true of you. Some of them will be true of you. I want you to put a circle around any of these things that are true of you in terms of how you failed your wife. And then after you've done it, I want you to give this to your wife. 
and I want your wife to go down over it, and I want her to put a check mark alongside of the ways that she thinks you failed. And then at the end, you may add any things that aren't on this, and your wife may add anything as well. And then I'll give the same assignment to the wife because there's a log list for wife, wives and uh, mothers in here and tell them to do the same thing. There's also a scorecard for husbands and a scorecard for wives where husbands are asked to answer quite a few questions about husbanding, especially important things about husbanding and especially important things about uh, what it means to be a wife and a mother. And then there's a how do you rate as a lover inventory in here. Ways a husband may express love to his wife. And I think I have about a hundred ways listed there, and, and I have a, a list of close to a hundred ways that a wife may express love to her husband and, and ask them to go down over those things and indicate what they are doing and, and then what they're not doing but would be willing to do. And then I have them switch those things, and the wife says what she would like the husband to do, and uh, the husband says what uh, he would like the wife to do. They bring it all back, and I've got all kinds of data with which to work in terms of finding out about the specific sins and the specific failures of the husband and the wife and areas in which they need to change. We need to find out about the specific sins and failures of each individual. Now, these are some of the tools that I use to gather information and to broaden the focus of counseling, to shift it away from merely a focus on the adultery to the broader issues that are behind the adultery. I want to help people to get specific in their identification of sin. Now, the fifth thing is that to rebuild a marriage after an adulterous affair, the people involved must accept the responsibility for their own sins and must confess them and seek forgiveness for them. They've got to confess, accept responsibility for their own sins, and confess and seek forgiveness of the other person. Recently, someone gave me another Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, and the first frame, Calvin is saying, I've been disempowered. My centering, self-actualizing anima has been impacted by toxic, codependent dysfunctionality. In the next frame, his mother says, you have been temporarily inconvenienced. Take out the trash. Now, in this cartoon, Calvin is playing the victim theme. I've been disempowered. Look at what's been done to me. He uses psychological jargon as an excuse for his anger and irresponsibility. His mother won't allow him to do it. She relabels and says, you haven't been disempowered. Your self-actualizing anima has not been impacted by toxic codependent dysfunctionality. You've just been temporarily inconvenienced and she holds him responsible to get on with it. Now, what Calvin did in this comic strip, many adulterers try to do. But God won't allow them to do it. He holds them responsible and says, stop whining and get busy and take out the trash. Now, 
If you're going to rebuild a marriage, the person has to accept responsibility. The wife has to, the husband has to, and then make confession. First to God, as we said yesterday. And confession in the Bible comes from the Greek word homologeo, which is really two words, homo and logeo. The word homo means same. Logeo means to say. And so to confess your sins is to say the same thing about your sins that God says about them. And it isn't until the person sees his sin, acknowledges his sin, as God sees that sin and views that sin that he has really confessed. And then secondly, the person has to make confession to the person whom he has offended. Now, as I said yesterday... Making confession is not saying, I'm sorry you were offended. I'm sorry that you got so upset when I did thus and such. It isn't even, please forgive me for being so overbearing when you were unsubmissive. It isn't, please forgive me for being so nasty when you didn't keep your promise. Or please forgive me for being so unfaithful to you when you didn't satisfy my sexual desires. It's just saying, please forgive me. And probably it'll involve asking forgiveness of other people as well who have been hurt by it. You know, in some instances, in fact, in most instances, uh, it'll involve asking the children forgiveness and people in the church. Uh, As I said yesterday, it'll involve breaking it off with a third party and even asking forgiveness of the third party because you've sinned against that person. Never mind that that person may have seduced you. Two wrongs don't make a right. And you cannot absolve yourself of your responsibility because somebody else seduced you. And so forgiveness should be sought. Now in his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy lists what he calls the seven A's of confession. He says this is what confession involves. And he has seven A's. He says, first of all, when you made true confession, you've addressed everyone that's involved. You address everyone that's involved. We've already talked about that. Second, when you're making true confession, you avoid ifs, buts, maybes, when. Third, you admit specifically you don't deal in generalities. You get down to specifics in terms of what you did. Fourth, And this is very important. And I believe that some people have problems responding with forgiveness because this element of confession is missing. You acknowledge your sorrow over hurting and sinning against the other person. And you don't do that as a gimmick. You, if you do see your sin as God sees it, if you do understand how you have offended the other person, sinned against the other person, your heart will be broken. And when you go, you go with an understanding of how you have offended and hurt the other person. And you express sorrow for doing that. That's a part, I believe, of true confession. And fifth... You accept the consequences. No, forgiveness doesn't mean that you're absolved of all the consequences. God may forgive you of 
your sexual immorality and you may still get some sexually transmitted disease. And so when you're confessing, you're, you're saying, as David did in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, you're justified when you judge. Whatever you say, whatever you do, it's fair and it's just. You don't come to bargain. You don't do this just to escape consequences. You do it because it's what God wants you to do and you realize how wrong it was. And then six, true confession means you alter your attitudes and your behavior. And you haven't truly confessed unless you've altered your attitude as well as your behavior. And then lastly, true confession involves asking for forgiveness. It's saying, I have sinned. It's expressing sorrow and concern. It's expressing a desire to change and then specifically asking them for forgiveness. Jay Adams has said that true forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, is like playing basketball. You have the ball in your hand, and when you ask for forgiveness, you've thrown the ball to the other person. And now the other person has to respond. And it's very important to ask for forgiveness. But you ask for forgiveness... After these first six aspects of confession have been done. Now, we've got to hurry on. I've got about 12 more minutes. Six, to rebuild a marriage after an adulterous affair, the people involved must grant biblical forgiveness. They've got to grant biblical forgiveness. Now, you've got to explain forgiveness carefully to the people because many people have unbiblical ideas. In fact, I've heard some unbiblical ideas about forgiveness around this place during the last two days. Now, I won't say from whom I heard them, but I heard them. And all that says is that there are a lot of people who really do not understand biblical forgiveness. Now, I don't have time to fully expound biblical forgiveness. Jay has a book which is called From Forgiven to Forgiving... Unfortunately, it's out of print, but they're working on getting it reprinted and hopefully it's going to be available again. It's the best stuff on forgiveness that's available and you need to read it. But let me suggest to you just a few facts about forgiveness. Our forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness. We are to forgive as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. Now, one, forgiveness is not minimizing or excusing what the other person has done. Well, it wasn't that bad. That's not forgiveness. God doesn't minimize what we did. It was so bad that we deserve to go to hell. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. I don't feel like forgiveness. That has nothing to do with forgiveness. That's a wrong concept of feeling of forgiveness to think that it involves primarily our feelings. Nor is forgiveness forgetting. We hear a lot today about, well, forgive and forget. Forgiveness is not forgetting. The Bible nowhere tells you to forget somebody's sin. It tells you to forgive that sin. Our forgiveness, as I said, is to be modeled after God's forgiveness, which means that our forgiveness is Hear me. Conditional. You've heard a lot about unconditional forgiveness? That's unbiblical. 
God's forgiveness is not unconditional. God's forgiveness is conditional. He says, repent or perish. And if you do not repent, God will not forgive. Which means that I cannot, I must not forgive somebody else until they have repented. My forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness. And if somebody doesn't ask me for forgiveness, I cannot forgive them if I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I must always be ready to forgive. But I cannot actually grant forgiveness until the person asks me for it. Psalm 86 and verse 5 says that God is ready to forgive. And just as God is ready to forgive whenever we repent, whenever we confess, we must always be ready to forgive, but we cannot grant that forgiveness until the person wants it. I am not obligated to forgive an unrepentant sinner. I am obligated to try to bring him to repentance. And so forgiveness is conditional. Secondly, forgiveness is costly. For God to forgive us cost him the death of his son. And forgiveness will often be costly on our part. Then too, since our forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness, it must be for Christ's sake. It is not because the other person deserves it. It is because through Christ we are forgiven. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. That's the basis of our forgiveness. We know forgiveness, so we must forgive. And that's the point of Matthew, the 18th chapter and verse 21. Since our forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness, it is gracious forgiveness. It is by grace. God has graciously forgiven us. It isn't because the other person deserves it, has earned it. We do it by grace. Forgiveness is a choice. God chooses to forgive us. He commands us to forgive. And basically, as J. Adams has so clearly pointed out, forgiveness is... a Here it is now, listen. If you don't have it, get it. Because some of this may really be... Uh, somewhat hard for you to take. But forgiveness is a promise I make to the other person. It's a promise. It's not a feeling. It's a promise. And what I promise is that I won't bring the other person's sin up to him again. When he's asked me for forgiveness, I promise that I'll never bring it up to him again. I'll never bring it up against him again. It's a promise that I won't bring it up to other people in a condemning way about him again. It's a promise that I won't even bring it up to myself. And it's a promise that I won't allow it to interfere in our relationship anymore. See, the Bible, as I said before, does not command us to forget. What it does is command us not to remember. There's a difference between forgetting and not remembering. Forgetting is something that happens. Not remembering is something that I choose. So every time, once I've forgiven, this comes back up, I choose not to remember it. 
I choose not to dwell on it. I choose not to think on it. And if I choose not to remember it and think on it, eventually I come to the place where I do forget it. Eventually I come to the place where I don't have those feelings. But have you ever worked with people? I, I, don't, I haven't forgiven because they have all these feelings. Because they're thinking of forgiveness as a feeling. Forgiveness is a promise. And if you keep the promise, eventually your feelings will change. But you've got to make and you've got to keep the promise. And one other thing that we learn from God's example is that forgiveness leads to reconciliation and restoration. Please hear me. This is so important in terms of a situation where you have an adultery. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation and restoration. God's forgiveness always leads to reconciliation, restoration. So if somebody comes to me and I've got a wife who has committed adultery... And the husband says, I'll forgive her, but I won't be reconciled. I say, you haven't forgiven her. Because in the Bible, forgiveness is always unto reconciliation. It's always unto restoration. And if I have a repentant adulterer or a repentant adulteress, if the person forgives, the person must seek reconciliation and restoration. If the person is unwilling to repent, then church discipline comes into play. And eventually, if the person does not repent, the church grants to this person the right to pursue a divorce. But if this person says they are repentant and wants to come back into the relationship, then the so-called innocent person, as I see it from the Word of God, when forgiveness is granted, it means that I am willing to be reconciled. I am willing for the relationship to be restored. That's the way God does it. And our forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness. I wish I had more time to say about that, but that's so important in terms of granting for biblical forgiveness. Now, uh, four other things I'm just going to run through. To rebuild a marriage after an adulterous affair, the people involved must make specific plans about how they will change. They must make specific plans about how they will change. Change is always a two-factored process. It's not only putting something off, it's putting something on. Now, notice I said making plans. People do not change by accident. They usually change because they make plans on how they're going to change. Romans 12:17 says, plan ahead to do what's right. And notice I talked about specific plans. It isn't enough to say, well, I've been inconsiderate, now I'm going to start being considerate. I say, okay, give me 15, 20 ways in which you're going to be considerate. Say, I'm going to, I've been nasty, I've been harsh, I'm going to start being gentler. Okay, give me 15, 20 ways in which you're going to be a gentler person. You've got to get them specific. And then you have them keep a journal. That's the times when they were considerate, and times when they were inconsiderate, times when they were gentle, times when they weren't gentle. You see, you have to make specific plans. Number eight, to rebuild a marriage after an adulterous affair, the people involved must commit themselves to a commandment way of life. There are only two ways to live. One is a feeling-oriented way, and the other is a commandment or faith-oriented way. And we're living in a day 
when we no longer know the meaning of commitment. We make vows and commitments and we break them at will. The only thing we're committed to anymore, it seems, is our own personal happiness. If something doesn't make us happy, forget it. Well, we need to bring people to the point where they'll make a commitment and almost sign in blood. I will do what God wants me to do regardless of how I feel. And then ninth, we need to help them to practice effective communication. Jay Adams has said when it comes to interpersonal relationships, communication comes first. Another man has said that a good communication system is the heartthrob of a marriage relationship. It's the nerve center. And they will never rebuild their relationship unless they learn how to communicate effectively. Now, I don't have time to develop that, but I have eight chapters on communication in your family God's way. The heart of this book is on communication because I believe it is the heartthrob of a good marriage relationship. It's the nerve center. And marriages break down because people aren't communicating effectively. And so you need to work in that area of communication. And, and as I've worked with a lot of cases where there have been adultery, I've had them chapter after chapter work through this book, bring it in. We've gone through it, talked it over, applied it, examined, evaluated what they've studied, and the discussion questions at the end as we work in trying to rebuild the relationship. And then, number ten, to rebuild a marriage relationship after an adulterous affair, the people involved must make changes for the right reason, which is to please God. Not to get the other person back, not to be happy, but to please God. Matthew 6, 33, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 14. George Scipione had a tremendous exposition of that passage this morning in his session, and you ought to get it and listen to it, but... They've got to make changes for the right reason. Number 11, to rebuild a broken marriage, the people involved must practice the new way of relating until it becomes a habit pattern. They've got to practice it. Hebrews 5.14 says that our faculties are trained by reason of practice. And 1 Timothy 4.7 says we've got to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And that means, again, you have them keep journals. You check up on them every week. They promise to do this. They come back. You check up on them. You keep checking up on them. You keep encouraging them. You keep motivating them until finally the old habit pattern is put off and the new habit pattern is put on. But that only happens by way of practice. And then number 12, to rebuild a broken or breaking marriage, the people involved must seek godly counsel. If anyone's overtaken the fault, they need somebody who's spiritual to restore them. You know, every Christian should think of himself or herself as a race car driver. Do you know that? You ought to think of yourself as a race car driver. Now, if a race car driver is to be successful, he's a pit crew. He'll never win a race without a pit crew. He goes around and around, he stops, and boy, they he got a bunch of men who pull off his, his tires, put on new tires. They, oh, somebody's doing that, somebody else is sticking gasoline, somebody else is checking the oil. You know, and without that pit crew, that race car driver would never make it. Well, we're like that race car driver. 
in our marriages, in our own personal lives. Without a good pit crew, we probably aren't going to make it. And so we need to encourage these people to get a good pit crew. Or they need to think of themselves as a gymnast. You know, a gymnast never becomes, I should say, as far as I know, a gymnast never becomes a good gymnast unless he has a good coach. Tells him on the balance beams and on all of the other things they do, you're doing this wrong, you need to do this right. And it's only as a good coach. And boy, they fight over getting the best coach. And they brag about the best coaches. And the United States wants the best coaches for the Olympics. And so does everybody else. Because they know the importance of having somebody else coaching them. Well, those are 12 steps for rebuilding a marriage that has been broken by the sledgehammer of adultery. And I believe that uh, they're biblical steps, and when we implement them rightly under the blessing of God the Holy Spirit, we'll see God putting people back together again, uh, whom the world may think, for whom the world may think there's no hope. So let's um, search the scriptures daily. Let's evaluate the things we've heard in this session and every other session. And may God bless us and help us if we go back to our local churches. We're living in a dark world. The Bible says this is a crooked and perverse generation. But in this crooked and perverse generation, we are to shine as lights, holding forth the word of life. May God bless you and help you, my brothers and sisters, to stand for him. We're living in days where the church of Christ is under attack. The word of God is under attack. Immorality, ungodliness is all around us. May God help you and may God help me to stand for him and use us to call men back to the word of God and to our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you as you go your way.